welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded to you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Monday, September 25th, we're studying Leviticus chapter 23, verses 1 to 44. In today's text, the Lord lays out the liturgical calendar of holy times for his people Israel. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Steve Andrews. Pastor Andrews serves at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri. Pastor Andrews, welcome back to Sharper Air. Thank you. Honor to be with you again today. Talk to us briefly about the book of Leviticus, Pastor Andrews. We've got quite a bit of text, and there's a lot of content within this text, but just help us set the stage for what we're going to read here in chapter 23. Well, sure. Um, so we have the book of Leviticus given to Moses by the Lord somewhere in the 40 years of Israel's wilderness wanderings, probably the beginning of that. And the themes of this book, although a lot of Christians don't care for Leviticus and tend to avoid it, the themes are themes that are going to really point you to Christ when you think about them. So you have in the opening chapters so much about the different sacrifices that Israel was instructed to make and then we think of Christ as our once-for-all sacrifice. Like, we don't have to bring all the bulls and the goats and the lambs and all that to, to the altar. As pastors, you and I don't have to sacrifice them and throw the blood on different things. And thanks be to God, Christ has already done this for us. The cross hangs above the altar as a beautiful um, architectural symbol of that. You think of the conversations about atonement, about rest, about being redeemed that just flow through this book. And yes, it bogs down a little bit when you read them, but those same words, we use them all the time to talk about Jesus, who he is, what he's done for us, how he has made us clean in the water of baptism, how he gives us not just momentary rest, but rest forever in him, and how he has redeemed us by buying us back from our slavery to sin. So we've got a lot in this book about worship, and there'll be a lot in this chapter about the worship of God's people, especially about their liturgical year, their church calendar, if we want to call it that. So yeah. um, that's something we can relate to today very easily, and I thank you for giving me an easy text. That's, well, and there's so much of it, too. We, we're really going to have to take a, a big-picture view. We are going to talk about the various feasts for the people of Israel throughout the year, but this study is not going to be the one that's going to go in-depth into each one. Those will be different studies for a, for a different series. This one's going to try to give us a big-picture view, and, and maybe the way to connect it to the rest of Leviticus is we've, we've considered a lot about God's holiness, especially in terms of place, so the holiness that the Lord has by living in, among, in and among the people there in the tabernacle. Now we're going to see how the holiness affects time. So not just holy places, but now especially holy time. The church calendar, I think, is a helpful way to, to get a handle on this chapter as a whole. I'm going to, because it is a long chapter, and I think there are a couple divisions, I'm going to not going to read the whole chapter at once. I'm just going to read actually the first 
three verses to get us started to introduce this thought of holy time and then to, to take us into that weekly observance of holy time with the Sabbath. So this is Leviticus chapter 23, beginning at verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. All right, again, that takes us through verse 3, and we'll pause there. So in those first two verses, Pastor Andrews, how do we get an introduction to the whole chapter and some of the topics we'll encounter in chapter 23? Well, I mean, first what we see is that this is God's Word, and He has been speaking this way in Leviticus quite a bit, but really everything with the exception of the last verse of chapter 23 is going to be the Lord speaking to Moses, and then the final verse of the text, we just mm -hmm. see Moses do what God gave him to do, which is to tell the people this word of the Lord. And then in verse 2, we get to see the idea of, of what it will be. So God is instructing Israel to observe these various feasts or festivals, I think we use both words kind of interchangeably today, where they're going to be holy convocations. I don't think convocation is a word we use all that much, but breaking that phrase down, you shall proclaim as holy convocations would be good to do. So the word proclaim is to speak, but to speak, I guess, in a declarative manner. Um, the Hebrew word is karah, and it is used to proclaim or to call out. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, if you are speaking somebody's name, like if uh, Abraham's naming his son Isaac, he karahs him Isaac. Like That's the proclamation of the, the name. And then to be holy is to be set apart for a specific, a unique purpose from the rest of the time. And so we have these these moments in their church year, their, well, their regular year, that are being set apart to be different. And then that word convocation actually comes from the same word as proclaim in Hebrew. It comes from that karah word. Again, it's just the participle of it. So we have this idea that these are holy days for the purpose of God's word being proclaimed. And we do see that for ancient Israel from time to time, that they gather together they hear God's word being read to them. So, okay, so maybe, and it's hard to do this in English, but you shall proclaim these as holy proclamations, or you shall, I don't know, convene these as holy convocations, something, I mean, just to kind of try to get the idea that these things are related, but especially keeping in mind the proclamatory aspect of these gatherings. They are for the purposes of proclaiming God's word. At least that's a, going to be a big part of that as we go through these feasts and festivals, as you said, often used interchangeably. Hearing it called a feast, I think, is helpful because there is often eating involved in these gatherings together, as we've seen throughout the book of Leviticus. So, with that introduction in mind, the first of these holy convocations, these feasts, these proclamations, is the Sabbath day. This is a weekly observance. It's probably the most familiar one to Christians because it's enshrined in the third commandment that we still learn. What do we find out about the Sabbath and why God gave it here in verse 3 of our text. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Uh, what does this mean? 
right? Uh, as we think of Luther's explanation, that'll probably come up today. But we learn it's the seventh day. So that gets us thinking back to Genesis chapter 1, to the act of God's creation, where he speaks this creation into existence in six days. And on day seven, he, well, he Shabbats, he Sabbaths. That's the Hebrew word for to stop, cease, or rest. He rested from his work. He stopped his work. Um, stop, probably a little harder of a word, I guess, for us in, in English with its connotation. If you stop something, it doesn't necessarily have the assumption that you'll pick it up again, whereas rest maybe does. So the, we talk about God resting from his work on the seventh day with the assumption on the eighth day he picks it up again, which we know he did. Uh, thanks be to God for that. So probably why we use the word rest more often. It's The Sabbath day is a day to stop working. It is a day for God's people to rest and to recognize that he is at work and that he is caring for his people and that it doesn't depend on us, which is really hard for our sinful nature to grasp. Yeah, I mean, the, the Sabbath day, I've, I've heard it said that it's very countercultural because you mean I'm not going to work for a whole day? Like, don't I need to work? Doesn't If I don't work, aren't things going to fall apart? And the Lord says, it's going to be okay. And it will. I mean, to put it crassly, this is like asking the question, do you believe that if you take a day off from work, God can keep the world spinning? And and how prideful and arrogant it would be for us to actually say, no, he can't do that. I I have to do that. But it is what our sinful nature is doing when we, when we fail to rest. And so we struggle with this a lot as a, a church body today in 21st century America. Like, I mean, just think of your day off from work. Think of your weekend as a, if you work five days a week or whatever your, your week looks like, you have that time off. And the moment you sit down and, and start to rest, you feel guilty for it right? You have to get up and go do something. I need to do housework. I need to... No, rest. <laughs> Stop. Stop working. It'll be okay. Yeah, that's right. Now, for the people of Israel, certainly that physical rest was important, and physical rest is important for us today. When we consider how Luther explains it in the small catechism, though, he doesn't really focus on the physical rest as much as he does the spiritual rest. So talk to us about the, the spiritual rest component of the Sabbath day. Right, so Luther's explanation, we should fear and love God so that we may not despise preaching in his word, but hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it. Not only does it like downplay physical rest, it skips it all together. Luther jumps right over it to spiritual rest. And the way I like to talk about this when I'm teaching the kids in confirmation is to, to think about what sin actually does to us, to our bodies. The idea that sin is a burden. Uh, the idea that guilt does weigh us down and that the devil is using these things to attack and harm us both spiritually but also physically. We know, I think, from a lot of the ways that we've studied in medicine and science today, that stress actually has physical ramifications on our bodies. Like It, it will appear as physical pain for a lot of people. And so what is more restful then than to hear the proclamation from Jesus Christ that your sins are forgiven, that that burden, that guilt that you've been carrying around with you all day, all week, it's not yours to carry anymore. He took it. He took it for you. 
you're forgiven. And so to have that impossible burden taken off of our shoulders, it truly is the greatest rest that we can have. So I don't I don't know if, where you could find Luther actually writing something like that, but that's my thought for why he makes the skip he makes. Sure, and I, it's a, I think it's a very faithful one. He does, in the large catechism, mention the need for physical rest for those who, who labor. So he doesn't ignore that in other places, but for the, the heart of the commandment, it is the rest that's found in Christ. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, says, says Jesus. So it is this, this weekly pattern of rest on the Sabbath that the Lord gives first to his people here in Leviticus chapter 23. He sets this pattern week in, week out. Uh, before we continue forward in Leviticus chapter 23, just since we're talking about liturgical calendars and we think about the church year for us as Christians, how do we see this weekly pattern for Christians still today? Well, as Christians, we still gather in the church once a week to not despise preaching, but gladly hear and learn it, to hear that forgiveness of sins, to receive that forgiveness of sins. So we have the absolution, we have the Lord's Supper. And we don't do that on the same day they did. They did it on Saturday. The church moved it to Sunday, which is actually one of the, the arguments that you get about the, the historicity of Christ's resurrection. The idea that Jews who have worshipped on, on a specific day, every day, well, every week for thousands of years, suddenly are willing to shift the day they gather for worship. Um, something momentous has happened, monumental, and I, I think that's a, a nice argument. Yeah. All right. So that we have, we've got this weekly pattern that the Lord sets first. And then from here, the rest of the chapter deals with now a yearly pattern for worship. And so, Pastor Andrews, looking at some of the notes that you sent me ahead of time, I'm going to divide this section into two. It seems that the first three feasts are centered more toward the beginning of their year, and the second three are centered more toward the, the second half of the year. So you've almost got two parts of the church here. And again, we can draw some parallels to our practice. So I'm going to read again, starting in verse 4 of Leviticus chapter 23. I'm going to go through the end of verse 22 to give us the first three main parts here in the year. So Leviticus 23, beginning at verse 4. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. But you shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord, so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb a year old without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the grain offering with it shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord with a pleasing aroma. And the drink offering with it shall be of wine, a fourth of a hen. And you shall eat neither bread nor grain, parched or fresh, until this same day, until you have brought the offering of your God. 
It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheep of the wave offering. You shall count fifty days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour, and they shall be baked with leaven, as firstfruits to the Lord. And you shall present with the bread seven lambs a year old without blemish, and one bull from the herd and two rams. They shall be a burnt offering to the Lord, with their grain offering and their drink offerings, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And you shall offer one male goat for a sin offering, and two male lambs a year old as a sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the firstfruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And you shall make proclamation on the same day. You shall hold a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. It is a statute forever in all your dwelling places throughout your generations. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. And that takes us through verse 22 of Leviticus chapter 23, the first three of these feasts that the Lord gives each year. Uh, Pastor Andrews, maybe before we look more specifically at each one, just kind of give us the, the big picture here. I, I grouped these together. Can you kind of give us the, the big picture of what's going on in this section? Yeah, sure. So we have, I mean, we've been given a, a structure for the entire year first. So they have, and you can see this in Numbers 28, but they have the, the pattern of, of monthly offerings and daily offerings. So you've got the morning and the evening, then you've got this weekly offering, this weekly Sabbath. And now we get a prescription of the very specific we would call them holiday, holidays, holy days, right? Those words are definitely connected in their etymology. And so we're going to have the first cluster of holy days for God's people of Israel right in the first month. And then we'll have a second cluster of them that come together in the seventh month, evenly spaced in the year. When you have a 12-month year, these are six months apart. And so your focus is being drawn back to the Lord throughout the calendar, and I think that's the intent through this. Exodus chapter 12, God is redeeming his people from slavery in Egypt, and he tells them right at the start of that chapter that this day is the beginning of a new year for you. He marks it apart as a holy calendar, a new calendar, not the one that Egypt was using. They were to have their own. And that calendar is going to start with, and it's going to point to Passover, God's rescue, his redemption of his people as they were enslaved in Egypt. Yeah, and I, I think that, that Exodus background, and again, combined here in the context of the book of Leviticus, is important as God comes to dwell in his holiness, then there is a holy place among the people, and his holiness spreads to them. And the fact that God in his holiness dwells among them, that makes time holy. And so their calendar revolves not around you know, again, the gods of Egypt, but their calendar revolves around him, uh, around his redeeming acts. And while we will certainly see elements of harvest, and so there's, you know, patterns of weather that certainly come into play with some of the things that we see here, ultimately, the way that Israel marks its time 
is based on the Lord's actions and not on some sort of impersonal force, so-called Mother Nature. Rather, the Lord is the one who marks their time and makes their time holy, and he gives them these feasts throughout the year for that purpose. So with that in mind, the first one, and really there's, there's two things that are designated here in the first one. Within the first month, you've got the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, give us a little bit of that background from Exodus as we need it, and then what is said here in Leviticus 23 about it. So as a reminder of the Passover, Israel has been enslaved in Egypt, and we know they spend 430 years there. The Bible's pretty specific to the day on that. But we don't know exactly how many of those years they spent enslaved. But after a while, they cry out to the Lord for help, and he sends Moses to go and tell Pharaoh to let his people go. Pharaoh refuses, and the ten plagues ensue. The tenth plague is the plague of the firstborn, where the firstborn son in every house of Israel, sorry, every house of Egypt would be killed that night. And so God instructs his people to sacrifice their lambs at twilight, take the blood of the lamb, paint it on the doorposts and on the lintel of their house, so a crossbar above the door, and that when the Lord comes that night to destroy their homes, any home with the blood on it, he will pass over. So a very simple and easy name for us in English to remember it by. And that's what happens. The Israelites trust the Lord. They do what he gives them to do, and he passes over their homes, and the Egyptians panic for obvious reasons, chasing Israel out of town. And the Lord in chapters 12 and 13 of Exodus establishes Passover as that main memorial feast for his people to celebrate each year, as that remembrance of what he's done for them, and also as the means by which they're going to pass down their faith to their kids. Your son will ask you, what does this mean? The good old Lutheran catechism question is actually right there in the Exodus text. And you will answer him in that day, and you'll teach him the story of the Passover. Yeah, that's right. So the, the Passover then is on the 14th day of the first month. That's the first time marker. And again, notice we're in the first month. We have this cluster around the beginning of the year for Israel. That's the Lord's Passover. And then connected to that in the week that ensues, you have the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So how does that tie in, again, to Exodus and what we have here in Leviticus? Right, and it might be worth mentioning just for, for now that this is not a calendar that looks like ours. And so right. when we say first month, it's believed not to be January. March, March, April kind of a time period here, which is then why, with Jesus' death and resurrection happening at Passover, why that ends up being March, April for Easter on our church calendar these days. But... I mean, we have day 14 for the Passover, and then days 15 to 21 is a week-long celebration called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And this is, again, connected to the time of Egypt, the time of wandering in the wilderness, because God, in Exodus 16, when the people complain about not having food, what does he do? He feeds them. He sends manna from above on the ground each day, as soon as the dew is up, uh, the people can gather this manna. Uh, that's simply the Hebrew word for, what is it? As the people walked out of their tents, they saw it and they said, what is it? And the name stuck. They called it manna. And so this Feast of Unleavened Bread reminds them of how God has provided. We see that with the Feast of Booths later too. So that's an interesting note to make for people as we look at this chapter now, 
that these feasts are being given to them by God as they're living them out. Right? We're in the time where the Israelites are going to be eating the manna, and they're going to be living in the tents, the booths. These will later become remembrances for the people, but they're, I guess, live. They're real time at the right. moment. Right, yeah. And the unleavened bread also was a feature of that first Passover meal. They were needing to be ready to go quickly out of Egypt, and so there was not time for the bread to be leavened. This becomes a part of that annual observance. So we've got the Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, connected there in the first month, the first of these feasts in terms of the yearly celebration, the way the Lord marks the time of the year. The next one that's given, and we've got about two minutes here before the break, so we can get started on this. In the ESV is called the Feast of First Fruits, according to the, the title given by the editors there. Uh, what do we see in, in this? How does the Lord help to mark time here? The Feast of First Fruits, Leviticus doesn't really specify. I know Dr. Kleinig's commentary from CPH suggests it happens on the 16th day. So you got Passover on the 14th, a Feast of Unleavened Bread begins the 15th, and then he puts the, the first fruits here on the 16th. Uh, we don't see that timing in the book, but the idea is it's the first piece of harvest. And so you've begun to harvest your barley, which they get to harvest that at a different time of year than the rest of their crops. Those come later. There's another celebration of that. And this is the first fruit. That is, you take that first part of the harvest and you give it to God. Uh, it's not, not for the people. So this is Cain and Abel, Genesis 4. Abel gave the firstborn of his flock, but Cain didn't give his first fruits. So that's going to be what we're, we're looking at there. And it connects then to the Feast of Weeks right after it. That's right. So the, the first fruits is a feast in which that the first barley harvest has come. And before you partake of this harvest, you give to the Lord his part of the harvest. We'll pick up more of those thoughts and continue forward in this chapter on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Steve Andrews this morning about Leviticus 23. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Lutheran Church Extension Fund exists to support Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and church workers. How do we do this? Your investment with LCEF makes it possible for LCMS churches, schools, organizations, and church workers to receive low-cost loans for new and growing ministries. And faithful Lutherans like you, church members and church workers alike, make that possible when you invest with LCEF. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, September 25th. We're studying Leviticus chapter 23, verses 1 to 44 with Pastor Steve Andrews. He serves at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri. Pastor Andrews, prior to the break, we had started to talk about the Feast of First Fruits, in which the people of Israel are given to offer their first of the barley harvest to the Lord before they are to partake of it. 
as a part of this, there's there's some offerings. There's a, an offering of a male, a lamb, male lamb a year old, and also a grain offering, a food offering, a, a wine offering. Can you talk at least just briefly, especially about that, that grain and wine offering that's going on here? Sure. I mean, we see all these kinds of offerings being connected to the various feasts in this text. Uh, it's it's the Lord's prescription. So Israel's supposed to give what the Lord is instructing them to give. So it's hard to say why God chooses what he chooses. But in verse 13, it's hard for us as Christians today not to make the connection when we read about an offering of bread and an offering of wine. How do we not think about the Lord's Supper? as Christ gives his body and blood for us in that, that meal of bread and wine. Yeah, so we've got, again, the Feast of First Fruits tied very closely to the matter of the Passover, clustered here in the first month of the year for the people Israel. And then the next feast is also going to be tied sequentially to the Passover. The ESV calls it the Feast of Weeks which may seem like a strange name to us. Why is that the title given? What do we see happening in this? Uh, we're in the, the third part of this first cluster. With verse 15, I mean, the, the text, the reason for the name makes sense. You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath. That's where the name comes from. So the Feast of Weeks is the idea that you are going to take that barley sheaf for the Feast of first fruits. you're going to give it to the priest, he'll make a wave offering of it, and then you're counting from the day he does that, seven weeks out. That's 49 days later. And it's the day after the Sabbath he did it. So we're the day after the Sabbath again. And if you count both of those days, it's that weird math thing where if you subtract one number from another, right, you, you add one. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> 49 days, when you count both days on both ends there, you actually have 50 days. Right. And so this feast is known better to us as a feast called Pentecost, which is simply the Greek word for 50, uh, 50th. That shows up in the New Testament four times. This is what the disciples are gathered in a house in Jerusalem for in Acts chapter 2, as there are three different pilgrimage festivals, including Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and then the later one, the Feast of Booths, each year that each Jewish male is supposed to go to Jerusalem to the temple for. So Passover, that has the implications for Holy Week as Jesus is there in Jerusalem. And then we have Pentecost as the Holy Spirit comes down upon the disciples. And there are men from every nation under heaven there to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ in their own native languages with the miracle that is specifically to Pentecost. Yeah, so this is one that it's helpful to see Leviticus 23 to understand, especially what goes on there in Acts chapter 2 why all the nations are gathered there. It, it's striking when you think about the, the harvest connections here, the Feast of first fruits, the beginning of the barley harvest, it seems that the Feast of Weeks has to do with toward the end of the barley harvest, it's all been gathered in to make a connection like that to the day of Pentecost in the New Testament, the gathering in of the nations into the church. It seems like there's some, some connections to be made. With the thinking about the, the harvest connections, you know, there's a number of offerings that are detailed here in Leviticus chapter 23 concerning the Feast of Weeks, but the Lord makes a harvest connection in verse 22 with some instructions about how far or how much to harvest and what to leave behind. Uh, what's there in verse 22 for us? The Lord is showing mercy. The Lord is having compassion 
on those who are in need. And this is not the first time the specific law has been mentioned in the book of Leviticus. It's back in chapter 19 already as well. The idea here is, as you go out into your harvest field, it doesn't really matter what it is you're harvesting. If, if you're harvesting barley, if you're harvesting grain, if you're harvesting even your vineyard, if you're harvesting your grapes, don't get it all. Like, don't don't be so, I don't know what the right word would be there, greedy isn't necessarily it, but don't be so focused and fixated on getting everything you can from your harvest. Remember, the Lord will provide for you. And so the Lord's going to use these leftovers to provide for those who are in need. And so we've got two classes that are mentioned. You've got the poor and also the sojourner. The sojourner would be essentially the foreigner, the, the one traveling, wandering through your land who does not have a home to call his own. And so they're going to be able to use what's left to survive. So you think of the, the edge of the field gets mentioned as a, a poor person's just walking by. They're going to see your field, and instead of having to wander through your whole field wondering if they can find anything, well, if you didn't harvest the edge of your field, they don't have to go into your field. They can just go right up off the road to the, the edge of the street there and grab a little food to keep them over. Uh, and then the second part of it is the idea of the gleanings, which comes from the, one of the Hebrew words for to gather. And I think the Ruth account, Ruth chapter 2, is probably the most helpful for understanding this one, as Boaz, following this very law, doesn't pick up everything that they've been harvesting. So you think of, you know, taking a sickle and cutting down the stalks of grain. Some of it falls to the ground, and as you're bundling it up into sheaves, you don't get every single piece. That's all right. Leave those and let those who are in need come behind you and pick those up. And we see Ruth doing exactly that thing. And I think it's like Ruth 2, verse 17 and 18 that she's doing that. Yeah. So you, again, you see the Lord's mercy and compassion for all his people in providing for their physical needs. And then having it mentioned here, again, in the context of the holy time, the Lord would have even the poorest of his people participate in the worship life. The, the holy time is for them as well, even for the, the poor. And so it gets mentioned again here. Now here, once again, we've got this first cluster toward the beginning of their year. As you said, March, April, that's the beginning of their year. That takes us through verse 22. Starting in verse 23, we're going to fast forward about six months to the seventh month of their year. So more our fall, September, October is the time we're going to be thinking about here with the rest of this chapter. So we're picking up the text again, Leviticus 23, beginning at verse 23. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with a blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, and you shall present a food offering to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now on the tenth day of this seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. And you shall not do any work on that very day, for it is a day of atonement, to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whoever is not afflicted on that very day shall be cut off from his people. And whoever does any work on that very day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall not do any work. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict yourselves. On the ninth day of the month, beginning at evening, from evening to evening, 
shall you keep your Sabbath. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of this seventh month, and for seven days, is the feast of booths to the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as times of holy convocation, for presenting to the Lord food offerings, burnt offerings, and grain offerings, sacrifices and drink offerings, each on its proper day, besides the Lord's Sabbaths, and besides your gifts, and besides all your vow offerings, and besides all your free will offerings, which you give to the Lord. On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Thus Moses declared to the people of Israel the appointed feasts of the Lord. That is the rest of our text for today. It takes us through the end of Leviticus chapter 23. So, Pastor Andrews, again, we have fast-forwarded now from the first month, the beginning of the year, the beginning parts of the harvest in first fruits and weeks. Now, toward the end of the year, we've got a little bit more harvest language when it comes to the booths, the end of the harvest there. Uh, three more feasts to talk about. First, what's called the Feast of Trumpets in the ESV, the briefest description. Well, what do we find out there in verses 23 to 25? Yeah, there's very little about this one. We do have it's a holy convocation, so it's a day of rest. It is on the first day of the seventh month, and the rest is to be proclaimed by a trumpet blast. For our listeners who want to learn more about that, I'd encourage you to go read Numbers chapter 10, where you can learn lots of reasons why the silver trumpets that are made are supposed to be sounded. And I, I'm imagining they had different ways of sounding the trumpets in order to do the different things like breaking camp, gathering the elders of the congregation together, even going to battle against enemies. They were to sound the trumpet for the Lord's remembrance. And then it also mentions these appointed feasts right there in Numbers 10 as well. So there's that connection, certainly. Uh, but yeah, there's not, as you mentioned, this is the shortest. There's not much given to us about this feast. Yeah, it, it seems to serve almost as a kickoff to the second half of the of the church year here. You've got the trumpets that then very much leads into the Day of Atonement and then the Feast of Booths. Now, the Day of Atonement receives description here in verses 26 to 32. The Day of Atonement was talked about at length in chapter 16 of Leviticus, really the central feature of this entire book. Here it's prescribed for something that Israel will do every year. Uh, give us some of the, the background as we need it and the details as they're given here. Our background with the Day of Atonement, maybe we'll start with what the word atonement means. I, I like to look at atonement by breaking it down into those first two syllables, at one. Our sin separated us from God. Atonement 
the idea of being atoned with God is that we have been made at one with him again. That relationship has been restored. And so the Day of Atonement is the day when God's people were annually restored to him. This was the only day of the year that the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies or the most holy place in the tabernacle first and centuries later in the temple. He would go in twice from the way the text in chapter 16 read. He would take the bull, the blood of the bull for himself. He would sprinkle that on the Ark of the Covenant, the throne of God. And then he would go and he would take, well, two goats, but he would sacrifice the one. The blood of that would go back into the Holy of Holies, sprinkle that on the Ark, and that would be to atone for the sins of the people. Other than that, no one ever went into that room. And so this is God's holy throne room. It's set apart for that very specific purpose. Um, today, that day is still marked on Jewish calendars. And I think a lot of Christians will be familiar with the phrase Yom Kippur, even if it's only because you see it on those calendars you buy in the store um, in italics when it comes up at the end of the year. But the Jews can't celebrate it because the temple has been destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. So the high priest can't go in and make the offering before the Lord. And so they're waiting. They're prepared, actually, in Jewish culture and tradition for if the temple is rebuilt, they know who their high priest would be, and they'd be ready to, to celebrate the Day of Atonement again. So that's the, the background that we've got there in Leviticus chapter 16. As the Lord describes what is to happen, again, on this 10th day of the seventh month, it seems here that it's very much emphasized the matter of afflicting yourselves and especially not doing any work on this day. Those are the things that really get re-emphasized as the, the holy time is described here. Talk to us about some of those emphases here. Yeah, the not working thing. Again, trust God, as that's been emphasized throughout this whole chapter. The Lord provides. And even the Day of Atonement, well, not even, especially the Day of Atonement, right? We cannot provide atonement for ourselves. We cannot achieve that with God. It must be given. And as Christians, we easily make the connection here with Jesus Christ as the one who atoned for our sins. We could not do it. Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses, but he has made us alive thanks to his death and his resurrection. As far as this word afflict, I don't know that it's ever really spelled out in the text. It comes from the Hebrew word to be oppressed or to humble oneself. And so we can, we can see some picture of that, right? If we think about oppressing ourselves, I think this is what leads people to suggest this along the lines of fasting from various things. I know Dr. Kleinig mentions food, drink, bathing, anointing, and sexual intercourse even uh, on page 333 of his commentary. But... It could simply, I think, also just be a reference to the idea like we do as Christians when we come before the Lord. We come before him humbly and we confess our sins. We lay them down before the Lord, not thinking highly of ourselves, but rather highly of him. Yeah. Now, so we've got that on the Day of Atonement. And I think just to reflect a little bit on the idea of rest, we talked about with the Sabbath, you know, you take a break. The world's going to keep going if you take a break because God is the creator. Here with the Day of Atonement, I think the rest we can say, the Lord is going to, he's going to atone for you. He's going to forgive your sins even if you don't work. 
It doesn't come by your work. The forgiveness of sins is given by God's grace. And so you can rest. You really need to rest on the Day of Atonement. The other thing, and this is a bit of an aside, Pastor Andrews, but you and I are pre-recording this episode. It's going to air, though, on September 25th, which I, I just realized is doing a little bit of research. The evening of September 24th through Monday, September 25th, that is actually Yom Kippur for Judaism this wow. year. What what timing? Right, right. But as you've said, as you've said, it can't rightly be observed according to Leviticus because there is no place for a sacrifice. And for us as Christians, the Day of Atonement has been fulfilled in the sacrifice that our Lord Jesus Christ has made once for all. See the book of Hebrews, which is actually what we're going to study on Sharper Iron after we finish Leviticus to make those connections even more strong. That's a, so, that's a good move. That's Hebrews right. 9. That's right. That's right. So one more feast to cover here in Leviticus chapter 23. It is the Feast of Booths. Again, we're still in the seventh month. Now on the 15th day, we're going to spend a week in this feast. Give us some of the highlights about the Feast of Booths. So like we had with the, the feast before, where we could call it the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost, this one is known as the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Ingathering. Booths and tabernacles are the same. It's a reference to the idea of Israel living in tents throughout the wilderness wanderings. Ingathering, which is actually mentioned as the name of it in Exodus chapter 23, is a reference to the harvest. So not the barley harvest now, but the other harvest as they are wrapping up that season and harvesting the rest of their crops. Either way, uh, the picture is God's provision, right? So if you're living in tents for 40 years, and the Lord provided. He fought for them, he guided them, he led them, and even though they could not plant a crop all that well, he cared for them. And so eventually they get into the promised land, they're able to settle in the promised land, plant their crops, have their harvests, and so forth, uh, much, more, much better in that way. And then in gathering again the harvest, as you bring that in, giving thanks first to God, and recognizing this is from him. We do actually see at the end of this text, very specifically, Israel is instructed to live in booths for a whole week. That would be meaningless originally because they're already doing that. But by the time you're in the promised land, you're living in Jerusalem or you're living in Samaria or wherever. Can you imagine if we all just in our neighborhoods got out some tents and did this for a week together? I mean, it would be noteworthy and again, a remembrance of what God has done for his people. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, this is one of those examples where the book of Leviticus, though they are still at Mount Sinai at this point, it's looking forward to the day when they are in the promised land. And so they are going to live in booths for a week, when, even when they have the houses of the promised land. The other feature that I think, and again, we're not spending the whole time on the details, but another feature just to point out is that you have the use, particularly of palm branches within the Feast of Booths, and when we start thinking about, again, some New Testament connections, palm branches are detailed as well on Palm Sunday. And so just to see their use within the worship life of the people of Israel, later we're going to see palm branches and decorating the temple. Those are some of the connections when we think about context for Palm Sunday, That just to, to point out here. So with that quick overview of the church here for the people of Israel, we've got about seven minutes here, Pastor Andrews, to think through some of the implications the ways that we can think about this text and use it as as Christians. We obviously have a, a church year. It's not quite the same as this, but maybe what are some of the, the implications that we learned from Israel's church year that we see applied in our church year today? 
Well, I think there's a few things we can glean out of a chapter like this. First, the idea that we see from the Lord, which has been in Leviticus already, that worship is not just to be whatever we want it to be. I mean, Nadab and Abihu, when they go and offer the worship they want to offer, contrary to what God has commanded, he actually destroys them for it. And we see that even here with the instructions about the Feast of Booths, that that plays out as well. So while there isn't a, a set pattern laid out in the New Testament that Christians must worship in this particular way, it does teach us that God actually cares how Christians approach him and that we should have reverence in the way that we worship. So that's, that's, I think that's helpful. And then in terms of a calendar idea, we've got this, this pattern for the, even up into the early church as they celebrate these holy days, of seeing these two major events in the year and always focusing on Christ in these events. And we as Christians today, we have the same thing. They're not exactly six months spaced apart from each other like they were for this, but close, you know, they're about four months away. So we have Christmas and Easter. And I love using the image of tossing a a stone out into a pond and seeing the the ripple effect when it hits the water as a, a way to think of the liturgical calendar, that you put Christmas and you put Easter where they go in the year, and then things ripple out from that. So you have Advent before Christmas as we look forward to the coming of Christ. You have then the season of Epiphany that comes after the birth of Christ as the good news is made known to all the nations. And then when we look at Easter and the resurrection of Jesus before Easter, the ripple effect on the one end is the season of Lent as we prepare our hearts and we we have that somber time of reflection over sin and then we go through Holy Week together as a church. But on the other side, we have the whole season of Easter where we celebrate, we rejoice, uh, we you know, open church services with phrases like, Christ is risen, he is risen indeed, hallelujah, uh, such a beautiful time. And then we move into that season also of Pentecost together, celebrating first the ascension and so forth. So our church year is structured very much so around these two days, just as for them, I, I think we could identify Passover and the Day of Atonement as being those two major days that keep their attention and their, their life reoriented around who the Lord is and what he's done for them. Yeah, yeah, I think I think so. I think those two days, you're right, to identify Passover and the Day of Atonement. And similarly, we have Christmas and Easter, and then everything else is really built around that. Even the thought of within the, you know, the two major seasons in the time of, uh, for the people of Israel, for us, we have the maybe the festival half of the church year, and then what's sometimes called the ordinary time, which is where we are right now, that season of Sundays after Trinity or Pentecost, in which we, we're just going through the teachings of our Lord, growing in Him. It seems that that same pattern is, is there in Israel that the Church continues to, to use today. Now, just thinking maybe more broadly again, as to the fact that the Lord even bothers to give the people this calendar, both the weekly rhythm of work, rest, work, worship, but also the yearly rhythm through these these festivals. Why why is that an important thing for us, that we would keep our time not simply on the way that the world around us keeps time, but keep our time according to the Lord's deeds? Help us to wrap things up with that thought. We've got about two and a half minutes here. Why is this important for Christians to mark time according to the Lord and His holiness? 
That's a part of our sinful nature to want to love the world around us. It's also a part of our sinful nature, though, to simply get caught up in the world around us. And so if, if we're orienting our time and our lives just around the world's schedule, so Monday to Friday, I work this hour to this hour, I take my kids to school from this time to this time, they have to be at the bus stop at this time, oh, thank God it's Friday, right, the old phrase, uh, now it's my weekend, I get to rest or go to sports or whatever, but right, all of a sudden, nothing there is oriented around who Jesus is. So the idea that we actually have shifted the Sabbath the day of rest and the day we worship the Lord to Sunday, which is considered the first day of the week, gives us this beautiful picture that we would begin our week with rest. We would begin our week by being filled with Christ and his good gifts, that as we go out then and live in the world around us in our vocations, we have something to give them. We have something to share as we seek to love our neighbors. So the weekly calendar, but even the, the full calendar, January 1st is not our new year. Our New Year as the church begins every Advent, and these things just help us to, to continue to focus on, on Christ rather than you know, get caught up on making, what's that, New Year's resolutions that don't last anyway. That's right. That's right. We, these things help to keep us focused, to use the, the language of, Le, of Leviticus, they keep us focused on the Lord and his gift of holiness to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. Pastor Steve Andrews serves at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri. He has been helping us today to study Leviticus chapter 23, verses 1 to 44. Pastor Andrews, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about Leviticus chapter 23, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It is always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.